Section 10 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 11, Part 3. The Duke and Duchess of Berwick and the Duchess of Lauzun came one day to visit Her Majesty at Chalot, and were beginning to devise many alterations and additions for the improvement of her apartments there, which were, in truth, in great need of renovation. She listened to everything with a playful smile, and then said, When my dower shall be paid, I may be able to avail myself of some of your suggestions. All I have power to do in the meantime is to follow your advice by changing the damask bed into the place where the velvet one now stands, which fills up the small chamber too much. The chair, in which Her Majesty was sometimes carried up into the tribune or gallery, which she occupied in the chapel, had become so shabby and out of repair that the nuns and her ladies pressed her to have a new one made. She refused at first, on account of the expense, but at last yielded to their persuasions. She ordered that it should be like a chair in the infirmary, but a little larger, and yet not too large, to be carried through the door of the little alley that led to the infirmary for she was constant in her visits to the sick, whether she was able to walk or not, and at this period, in consequence of her great debility, she was carried by her attendants in a chair. She wished the height from the ground to the top of the back to be five feet, like her chair of state at Saint-Germain, and then it should be covered with silk, called gros de tours, which she thought would be a cheap and suitable material, but when she heard that it was ten livres, that is to say, eight and four pence an L, which would make the chair cost altogether two hundred livres, little more than eight pounds, she exclaimed that she would not have such a sum expended for that purpose. Lady Strickland recommended Camelot, a thick watered silk, with some mixture of wool, as more suitable for the cover of the chair, and the queen told her to bring her patterns with the price. But as she found it would cost fourteen livres more than the other, she decided on having the gross detours. Of such serious importance had circumstances rendered that trivial saving to a princess who had once shared the British throne, and whose generous heart reluctantly abstracted this small indulgence for herself from the relief she accorded from her narrow income to the ruined emigrants at Saint-Germain. Madame, said one of the sisters of Chalot, you put us in mind of St. Thomas of Villeneuve, who disputed with his shoemaker about the price of his shoes, and a few days afterwards gave one of the shoemaker's daughters three hundred reals to enable her to marry, for your majesty is parsimonious only to enable you to be munificent in your charities and your offerings at the altar. The queen smiled and said, to turn the conversation, I certainly have no disputes about the price of my shoes, but I would fain get them for as little cost as I can. When I was in England, I always had a new pair every week. I never had more than two pair of new shoes in any week. I had a new pair of gloves every day, and I could not do with less. If I changed them, it was to the profit of my chambermaids. Monsieur de Lauzun once used some exaggeration in speaking to the king, Louis the Fourteenth, on the subject of my penury, when he said, Sire, she has scarcely shoes to her feet. This was going a little too far, but it is true, continued she playfully, that they have sewn these ribbons for the second time on my fine shoes. She laughed and showed the shoes as she spoke, adding, They cost me ten livres. 
I think that it is too much to pay for them, but they will not charge less for me. That is the way with the artisans. My mother would never submit to an imposition. She was both generous and magnificent, but she did not like to be charged more than the just price for anything. When, however, she had reason to think her tradespeople had been moderate in their charges, she would give them, out of her own pleasure, something over and above. The poor queen had cause at this time to apprehend that the cancer in her breast was going to break out again. She was also troubled with difficulty of breathing and general debility. Dr. Wood, whom her son sent to see her, advised her majesty to quit Chalot because he said the air was too sharp for her, and he strenuously objected to the fasts and perpetual succession of devotional exercises practiced in that house as injurious to her. The abbess and sisterhood were displeased at the English physician's opinion, intimated that Monsieur Aude had better attend to his own business, and begged their royal guest to send for Beaulieu, her own surgeon, to prescribe for her. Beaulieu contradicted all Dr. Wood had said, except on the subject of fasting, to which he was always opposed. As for the air of Chalot, he said it was nothing so keen as that of Saint-Germain, which was almost on a mountain, and recommended Her Majesty to remain where she was. Mary Beatrice said, The Chalot must be a healthy place, for that luxurious princess, Catherine de Medicis, built a summer palace there for herself, because she considered it the most healthy site near Paris. The Countess of Middleton observing, with uneasiness, that her royal mistress was sinking into ascetic habits, told the nuns one day in a pet, that the queen spent too much time in prayer at Chalot, that it was killing her, and if the king of France knew the sort of life she led there, he would come himself and take her away from them. Mary Beatrice could not refrain from smiling when this was repeated to her by the offended sisters. I do not think, said she, that the king of France would trouble himself about my prayers, or that he is likely to interfere with my stay at Chalot. My ladies, who like better to be at Saint-Germain, speak according to their own tastes, and are thinking more for themselves than for me, I doubt, in wishing to return. They may find pleasure in it. But for me, think you the life I lead at Saint-Germain can be very agreeable, when I am shut up alone in my cabinet every evening, after supper, till I go to bed, writing three or four hours? When I am here, I write in the morning, which is a relief to my eyes. There all my time is spent among the miserable, for of such alone is my society composed. Here I have, at least, cheerful company after my meals, and if I have a moment of comfort in life, it is here. She might have added, it is my city or refuge from the importunities and cares with which I am beset at Saint-Germain. It was again a year of scarcity, almost of famine, in France, and Mary Beatrice found herself reluctantly compelled, by the necessities of her own people, as she called the British emigration, to withdraw her subscriptions from the benevolent institutions in Paris, to which she had hitherto contributed, feeling herself bound to bestow all she had to give, to those who had the greatest claims on her. One day, an ecclesiastic who came from Saint-Germain to see her, told her that everyone there was starving, on account of the dearness of provisions. The intelligence made her very sad. She could not sleep that night, she said, for thinking of it, and when she slumbered a little towards morning, she awoke with a sensation, as if her heart were pierced with a pointed cross. It was at this distressing period that the old bishop, 
of Condon de Matignon, who was going to Marseilles, came to solicit the unfortunate queen to send an offering to the shrine of the Immaculate Virgin there. Nothing could be more unseasonable than such a request. Mary Beatrice replied, that in truth she had nothing to send, and was sorely vexed by his importunity. She told the community in the evening of the vexatious application that had been made to her by the aged bishop, and the impossibility of her complying with his request. Since all the profusion of costly jewels she once possessed, two only remained. One was the little ruby ring, which the late king, her dear lord and husband, when Duke of York, had placed on her finger at the ratification of their nuptial contract. The other was her coronation ring, set with a fair large ruby, sole relic of the glories of the day of her consecration as queen consort of England, and these she could not part with. The small diamond, added Mary Beatrice, which according to the customs of Italy, I received at the previous matrimonial solemnization at Modena from the Earl of Peterborough, I have sent to my son with my daughter's hair, for which he had asked me. The nuns endeavored to comfort her by telling her that when her son should be called to the throne of England, she would be able to make offerings worthy of herself on all suitable occasions. On the subject of the contributions that are frequently solicited of me, said the queen. I find myself much embarrassed, for it appears unsuitable in me to give little, and it is impossible for me ever to give much, all I have belonging rather to the poor than to myself. Wisely and well did the royal widow decide, in applying her might to the relief of God's destitute creatures, rather than gratifying her pride, by adding to the decorations of a shrine, Yet such is the weakness of human nature, the force of early impressions, and the manner in which even the strongest-minded persons are biased by the opinions of the world, that she was deeply mortified at being unable to send the gift that was expected of her by the old bishop. She at last expressed her regret that she had given her last diamond to her son, instead of adding it to the coronal of the Virgin of Marseilles. Madam, replied the nuns, the use you made of the diamond in sending it to your son was perfectly lawful, and these are times when saints themselves would sell the very ornaments of the altar to afford succor to the poor. Mary Beatrice was much entreated to assist at the twofold nuptials of the Prince de Conti and Mademoiselle de Bourbon and the Duke de Bourbon with Mademoiselle de Conti, by which a long feud between those illustrious houses would be reconciled. She excused herself, on account of her ill health and great afflictions, when the Princess Dowager of Conti came in person to invite her. Then the Duke de Lauzun came from Louis the Fourteenth to request her presence at Versailles on that occasion, and she declined for the same reason she had given to Madame Conti. The Duke de Lauzun took the liberty of a tried and sincere friend to urge her to accept the invitation, telling her that it was necessary that she should appear at Versailles on that occasion, lest the English ambassador should report her as wholly negligent and forgotten since the Peace of Utrecht, which would prejudice the cause of her son in England. The royal widow replied, that he had reason on his side, but for her part, wasted as she was with a mortal malady, and crushed with sorrow, she could not think of casting a gloom over the joy of others, at a bridal festival, by her tears, which, perhaps, she might be unable to restrain. 
She therefore prayed him to make her apologies, and to represent her wasted form and depressed spirits, and her utter unfitness to appear on that occasion. Lauzun represented at Versailles the sickness and grief of the queen, and Madame Maintenon, to whom her majesty wrote to beg her to make her excuses to the king of France, replied in a consolatory tone of kindness, expressing the regrets of the king and his young relatives at her absence, and requesting her to pray for the happiness of the bridal party. Madame de Maintenon added, that she hoped to come to Chalot on the following Monday to see her majesty, but in the meantime she could not help informing her that she had learned that many of the English were passing over from London to Calais on purpose, as it was whispered, to come to Chalot to pay their respects to her majesty, and to pass on to Bar to see her son. This flattering news was a cordial to the mother of the disinherited representative of the regal line of Stuart, him whom his visionary partisans in England fondly called the king over the water. The peace of Utrecht had, indeed, driven him from the French dominions, and limited his title there to the simple style of the Chevalier St. George, but that very truly would afford ready means of communication between him and those ardent friends who had sworn fealty to him in their hearts, and were ready, like the old cavaliers, who had fought for his grandfather and his uncle, to peril life and limb for his sake. He was remembered in England, and she, his mother, was not forgotten in the land of which she still called herself the queen, though four and twenty years had passed away since she had left its shores, on a stormy winter's night, with that son. Heaven's dearest but most fatal gift to her, then a sleeping infant in her arms. Now he had been driven from her, and for his sake she kept her court, in widowed loneliness, at Saint-Germain, as a center and rallying point for his friends, and struggled with the sharp and deadly malady that was sapping her existence. Sometime in the month of July, 1713, a fat English merchant, a member of the Society of Friends, whom the worthy sister of Chalot, in her simplicity of heart, calls a trembler or coquere by profession, came to the convent and craved an audience of the widow of his late sovereign, James II. Mary Beatrice, who was always accessible to the English, admitted him without any hesitation. Before he entered her presence, the Quaker gave his hat to a footman, and thus discreetly avoided compromising his principles by taking it off, or appearing to treat the fallen queen with disrespect, by wearing it before her. As soon as he saw her majesty, he said to her, Art thou the queen of England? She answered in the affirmative. Well then, said he, I am come to tell thee that thy son will return to England. I am now going to bar on purpose to tell him so. But how know you this? demanded the queen. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, replied the Quaker, showing her a thick pamphlet of his visions printed in London. When will the event of which you tell me come to pass? inquired her majesty. The Quaker would not commit himself by naming any precise time for the fulfillment of his visions, but said, If he had not been convinced of the truth of his predictions, he would never have put himself to the trouble and expense of a journey from London to Bar. The Queen laughed heartily when she related the particulars of this interview to her friends. The Holy Sisters of Chalot, not considering that three clever pinches would have transformed this Quaker's broad-brimmed beaver into the orthodox cocked hat of an abbe of their own church, regarded a Jacobite in drab as a very formidable personage, 
They protested that he ought to be shut up and treated as a lunatic, and were sure he intended to make some attempt on the life of the king. The reply of Mary Deste proved that she was better acquainted with the tenets of the Society of Friends, and entertained a favorable opinion of their practice. My son has no cause for alarm, said she. These poor people are not wicked, they love the late king very much, and they are so highly esteemed in England for their probity, that they are exempted from the oaths which others are compelled to take. They never overreach others in their merchandise, and they have adopted for their maxim the words of our Lord, when he bids us be meek and lowly in heart, yet they are not baptized. In England, all sorts of religions are permitted, pursued the queen. The late king said all these varying sects had had one point of negative union, which was to oppose the authority of the pope. My lord was convinced that he ought not to do violence to the conscience of anyone on the subject of religion. They had been persuaded in England, nevertheless, that his majesty had made a league with the king of France to force them to adopt his religion. Yet when that king drove out the Huguenots, they were given refuge in England, as well as in Holland, where they rendered us odious, as was seen about the time of the birth of the king, my son, when they conjured up false reports against us continued she, in the bitterness of her heart, imputing to the harmless refugees whom James had sheltered from the persecutions of his more bigoted neighbor, the calumnies with which his nearest and dearest ties of kindred had endeavored to stigmatize the birth of the unfortunate Prince of Wales. Me, they have accused of things of which I never thought, pursued the fallen queen, as if I had been as great a deceiver as themselves, they have attributed to me crimes of which I am assuredly incapable, of imposing a spurious child and committing perjuries. Others who love me have imputed to me virtues which I do not possess, but God will be my judge. The nuns endeavored to soothe her by saying, they hoped she would see their religion flourish when her son returned in triumph to take possession of his throne. Should my son return, said the queen, you will not see any alteration in the established religion. The utmost he can do will be to shield the Catholics from persecution. He will be too prudent to attempt innovations. Meantime, this beloved object of her maternal hopes and fears had been ordered to drink the waters of Aix-la-Chapelle, but the princes of Germany would not permit him passports. He wrote a few days after to the queen and told her, he had seen his enthusiastic Quaker liegeman, who had related to him his visions, and coolly added, I am not perhaps so great a prophet as Daniel, but I am as true a one. The prince said, He had laughed much at the absurdities of this person, and that it must have appeared strange to him that he did not receive any present, but, added he, I am not rich enough to have it in my power to make suitable gifts, all I had to bestow on him were some medals. I do not love either prophets or readers of horoscopes. This trait of sound sense, the prince derived from his royal mother, whose mind revolted from everything of the sort. The same evening after she had read her son's letter, Mary Beatrice said that she could not endure any of those marvelous things, neither revelations nor ecstasies. Madame Molza on this spoke of an Italian lady the mother of Father Signori, who had lately died in the odor of sanctity, who often fell into a trance, in which she remained until she was roused by the voice of her confessor, adding, 
that her majesty's mother, the Duchess of Modena, was delighted to see her. It is true, replied the queen, that my late mother took delight in seeing marvels and mysteries, but for my part I cannot endure them, and always avoid having anything to do with them. On the 18th of July, Elizabeth Charlotte, Duchess Dowager of Orlan, came with her daughter, the Duchess of Orlan, to cheer the royal recluse with a friendly visit. There was a great deal of kindness and good nature in Elizabeth Charlotte, notwithstanding the vulgarity of her person and manners. She had a sincere respect for the virtues and noble qualities of the widowed queen of James II, and although she was so nearly related to the parliamentary heir of the British crown, the elector of Hanover, she expressed a lively interest in the welfare of the unfortunate Chevalier de St. George, and when speaking of him to his mother, always gave him the title of the King of England. Both she and her daughter-in-law told the queen again how much affection the Duke and Duchess of Lorraine expressed for him, and how greatly they delighted in his company. The queen listened for some time to them, before she could command utterance. At last she said, The Duke of Lorraine has compassion on my son. He has had, from his own experience, but too much reason to feel for those who are deprived of their rank and possessions. The following animated song was composed at this period, and sung at the secret meetings of the convivial Jacobite gentry, in allusion to the friendship experienced by the son of Mary Beatrice from the court of Lorraine. All these poetical lyrics found their way to the convent of Chalot, though we presume not to insinuate that they were ever hummed by the holy sisters at the hour of recreation. Song Tune Over the Hills and Far Away Bring in the bowl, I'll toast you a health, to one that has neither land nor wealth. The bonniest lad that e'er you saw, is over the hills and far awa. Over the hills and over the dales, no lasting peace till he prevails. Pull up, my lads, with a loud huzzah, a health to him that's far awa. By France, by Rome, likewise by Spain, by all who forsook but Duke Lorraine, the next remove appears most plain, will be to bring him back again. The bonniest lad that e'er you saw is over the hills and far awa. He knew no harm, he knew no guilt, no laws had broke, no blood had spilt. If rogues his father did betray, what's that to him that's far away? Over the hills and far awa, beyond these hills and far awa, the wind may change and fairly blah, and blow him back that's blown awa. The feverish hopes which the inspirations of poetry and romance continued to feed in the bosom of the mother of the unfortunate Chevalier de St. George doomed her to many a pang which might otherwise have been spared. Mary Beatrice received so many visits, one day during her abode at Chalot, that she was greatly fatigued, and said she would see no one else. But at six o'clock in the evening, Monsieur de Torcy arrived. As he was the Prime Minister of France, he was, of course, admitted. The interview was strictly private. On taking his leave of the royal widow, he said, Her virtues were admirable, but her misfortunes were very great. The king, her son, might be restored, but it would not be yet. At supper, the queen, which was unusual, was flushed and agitated. The nuns took the liberty of saying to her, they feared Monsieur de Torcy had brought her bad news. It is nothing more than I already knew, replied the queen. God be blessed for all, his holy will be done. She ate little at supper, and went to prayers without saying what afflicted her. 
She had a restless night, and the next day she was very much depressed. They pressed her to take her chocolate, and at last, to silence the importunities of her ladies, she did. The same morning, she received a letter from Mr. Dickinson, the treasurer of her household, to show her that he could not send her any money. This seemed to augment her trouble. However, she performed all her devotional exercises as usual, but was so weak and exhausted that she could not descend the stairs without extreme difficulty. The nuns entreated her to declare the cause of her affliction. She confessed that she had not been able to sleep. Madam, said they, it must be something that your majesty has heard from Monsieur de Torcy, which has distressed you so much. The heart of that minister must be very hard and pitiless. It is no fault of Monsieur de Torcy, replied the queen. He has a very good heart and has always treated us well. The next day in the evening at the recreation, she revealed the cause of her vexation to the community. When she sent the London Gazette to her confessor, she said, that she had seen in it that both houses of parliament had united in demanding of the princess of Denmark, that is Queen Anne, not to permit the pretender. It is thus, said Mary Beatrice, they called the king, to be so near their shores. And the princess had replied that she had already sent a remonstrance to the Duke of Lorraine and would again, which might perhaps induce him to send him out of his dominions, but it was out of her power to force him to do so, as he was too far from the sea to fear the fleets of England. It was insinuated that the Duke of Lorraine would not have dared to receive the prince without the consent of Anne, and that he was waiting there to take advantage of a change of popular feeling. We are, continued the exiled queen, in the hands of God. Why then should we be cast down? I confess that this news disturbed me very much yesterday, so much so, that I did not wish to speak on the subject. I said to myself, why should I afflict these poor girls, who are about me? I ought to keep my trouble to myself, but seeing the news had been made public, I can no longer hide it. Phrenologists would say, after looking at the contour of this queen's lofty and somewhat elongated head, that the organs of caution and secretiveness were wholly absent, her conduct through life proves that she was deficient in these faculties. She told everything that befell her. She might have said with the psalmist, I kept silence, but it was pain and weariness to me. At last the fire kindled, and I spake. It was generally at the hour of the evening recreation, when the rigid rule of conventual discipline was relaxed, and the sisters of Chalot were permitted to converse or listen to discourse, not strictly confined to religious subjects, that the royal guest gave vent to her feelings by discussing with the sympathizing circle her hopes and fears on the subject of her son, or advert to the trials of her past life and the consolation she derived from religion with impassioned eloquence. The promises of God in the Psalms that he would protect the widow and the orphan were frequently mentioned by her. One day, the Duke of Berwick came to visit her and bring her English news, in the evening, she told the community that both houses of Parliament had moved an address to Queen Anne that she should write to the Allies not to suffer the pretender to be so near to England. In the course of the debate, an old gentleman of eighty years old, a member of the House of Commons, exclaimed, Take care what you do. 
I was a young man in the time when Cromwell, in like manner, urged the neighboring states to drive away him, whom they only called Charles Stuart. This bold hint gave a turn to the tone of the debate, which then became sufficiently animated, and it was found that the pretender, as they call her son, had a strong party to speak for him, even in that house. The nuns told their royal friend, that they hoped this good news would reach the king, her son, before he heard of the endeavor to deprive him of his refuge with the Duke of Lorraine. My son is not easily moved by these sort of things, replied Mary Beatrice. He cares only about the agitation that is excited against him. The prince was not quite so stoical in this respect. His valet de chambre, St. Paul, who had been delayed on his journey, brought him the intelligence of the vote of the British Parliament on St. James's Day. He wrote to his mother that he had received a fine bouquet, but through God's grace, he had not been much disturbed by it. Mary Beatrice wrote to him in reply that he had one subject of consolation, that the Lord had dealt with him as with those he loved, for such had their trials in this life. A little variation in the monotony of the convent was caused by the arrival of an artist named Gobert, with a portrait of the Chevalier de St. George, which he had been painting for the queen at Bar. Her majesty was much pleased with it, but her ladies and the nuns did not think it quite handsome enough to be considered a successful likeness. The Chevalier de St. George had frequently asked his mother to give him her portrait in her widow's dress, and hitherto in vain. A spice of feminine weakness lingered in her heart, aware how strangely changed she was by time, sickness, and sorrow, since the days when Lely painted York's lovely duchess among the dark-eyed beauties of Charles II's court. She refused to allow her likeness to be taken in the decline of life. She playfully explained her reluctance to sit again by saying, That Cardinal Bellarmine had refused his portrait to his friends, because an old man was too ugly for a picture. But when her son wrote to her from Bar to repeat his request, she said, she could not refuse him anything that might be a solace to him during their separation, and as it would be more convenient for her to have it done at Chalot than at Saint-Germain, she would send for Gobert, the same artist that had painted his portrait, and sit for him. The Abbasan nuns then joined in petitioning her to allow a copy to be made for them, but on this, she at first put a decided negative. Gobert came the next day to begin the picture, but it was not without great difficulty that she could be persuaded even then to let him take the outline of her head and the dimensions, for that which was to be placed in the tribune with those of her daughter and her son. At last, she said, she would be painted in the character and costume of that royal British saint, the Empress Helena, showing the cross, that she would have her son painted as Edward the Confessor. Drawing in her own mind a flattering inference for her son, from the resemblance between his present lot and the early history of that once expatriated prince of the elder line of England, and fondly imagined that the chevalier would one day be called, like him, to the throne of Alfred. Mary Beatrice said, The late princess, her daughter, should also be painted as a royal English saint. A blank is left in the manuscript for the name, but in all probability, Margaret Atheling, Queen of Scotland, was the person intended. Her son wrote to beg her to let him have two copies of her portrait, one for the Duke and Duchess of Lorraine, 
and another for the princess of Vaudemont, who had been very kind to him. He called a princess of Vaudemont an amiable saint, and said that his greatest comfort was talking with her of his mother and the late princess, his sister. Mary Beatrice was very perverse about her portrait, childishly so, for she ought not to have hesitated for a moment to oblige the friends who had given that asylum to her son, which the kings of France and Spain were unable to bestow. Such, however, are the weaknesses of human vanity. She wrote to her son that she had already refused her portrait to the community of Chalot, and what she denied to them she would not grant to others. To which the chevalier replied, that he thought it was very hard for her to deny such a trifle to the good nuns, and that she ought to oblige them, and his friends at the court of Lorraine as well. She then reluctantly conceded the point. When the painter came the next time, the queen was at her toilette, and before she was ready to take her sitting, the Duchess of Orléans came to pay her a visit, and being admitted, remained with her till dinner time. She told her majesty, that she thought her looking ill, much altered for the worse in appearance. This remark did not decrease the poor queen's reluctance to go through the business of sitting for her portrait. She took her dinner at half-past one, and appeared much fatigued and out of spirits, saying, She was very sorry she had consented to have her portrait taken. Yet when she found Gobert was waiting, her natural kindness of heart caused her to receive him very graciously, she allowed him to place her in her fautil in the proper attitude, and gave him a long sitting. In the evening, her majesty, with three of her ladies, went to take the air in the Bois de Boulogne. They all set off in the queen's coach, but the royal owner left Lady Middleton and Lady Sophia Buckley in possession of that vehicle, while she walked on with Madame Molza, and they took a solitary ramble for three hours in the forest glades together. She returned refreshed and in better spirits from that little excursion. End of section 10